we've been sounding the alarm for over a decade. Just now people are starting to listen because we've taken some of the hyperbole out of the conversation and now we're looking historically and we're saying, okay, 2018 was the worst year for billion dollar storm events only to be eclipsed by 2019. All of this is happening in our lifetime, in real world, it's happening all, all over the country. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the US employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by your renewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 69 starts right now, and we're excited about today's show as we welcome Mr. Dave Robau, founder and CEO of National Energy USA, an energy engineering firm that helps with integrated solutions to help their clients manage resources in both the government and private sector. And of course, Mr. Robau, what's interesting about him and his company is he's one of the first guests we've had on who works with the government as well as the Department of Defense. And so we'll get some of his thoughts on cybersecurity, uh, what it means to the grid, as well as climate change as a national security threat. Some very interesting thoughts from Mr. Robow and just some tremendous insight from him on those topics. But before we get into that, let's welcome to the program Miss Ann Niemer, COO and co-founder of eRenewable, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you for that, Miss Ann Niemer. You can find out more information about the company over at eRenew.net. And, of course, you can always find us on LinkedIn and give us a follow on Twitter at eRenew2020. Plus, you can follow our CEO and founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, at Mike underscore Niemer as well. So let's get right down to the program. Mr. Dave Robau, again, talking all things cybersecurity, cyber threats to the grid, what that means and what he's been doing to try to sound the alarm on that. Also, too, what it means about climate change as as a national security threat. Plus, he's also going to talk about the emergence of smart grids, as well as how he was able to get a former presidential candidate on his company's board. Plus, he's got an great uh, Power Up Energy Expo coming up over there on the Gulf Coast. Of course, for those of you that aren't on the Gulf Coast, it's going to be virtual as well. So it's a hybrid approach, and uh, we'll have more information on that in the podcast. You definitely do not want to miss that. So without further ado, let's welcome to the program Mr. Dave Robau. What kind of threat does climate change pose to the United States? Pretty significant. So what we're learning, and I'm, I'm giving a talk on Wednesday the threat of climate change to national security, because it is a national security issue. People are facing it at the residential level. You know, storms are increasing here in the Gulf Coast. 
We just had a category five hurricane uh, hit uh, Panama City, which is why we're there. 85% of all the structures at Tyndall Air Force Base, which took a direct hit, were impacted. So what we're seeing is across the country, you know, out west, we have forest fires, which are impacting our ability, you know, our quality of life, but also our ability for uh, training our troops and different things like that. In the middle part of the state, we, uh, the country, we've experienced tremendous flooding uh, that floods out airports, neighborhoods, military installations. Climate change doesn't really care. You know, up in the Northeast, we just saw record floods. I mean, I, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I saw footage of water actually cascading down into the subway system. So that impacts your ability to, to move people and, and impacts commerce and all of these things. You know, we also look at, it, look at it from a geopolitical perspective. I was a scientist with the Air Force for many years. So we're looking at this from a, how does this impact the ability for other parts of the world when it comes to access to resources, mainly food and water, when communities that were fertile are now infertile, there's no food security uh, issues. Then you have groups like ISIS coming in and controlling the supply chain of some of those materials. And clearly that has an impact on our national security. So a lot of what I'll talk about um, may seem to, you know, to some that those are kind of disparate conversations, but they're really one and the same. And I'll credit, you know, this administration for really looking at it as the serious threat that it is. And what you'll hear from Mr. Richard Kidd on Thursday as he comes down from the Pentagon uh, is this whole policy that's been drafted around addressing the impacts of climate change. You know, there's a $5 billion reconstruction effort happening at Tyndall Air Force Base as a result of Hurricane Michael. The federal government doesn't pick up the phone and call Jake at State Farm, right? I mean, these are taxpayers that come out of pocket and we're the ones that are, that are flipping the bill for this. We have over a hundred Air Force installations. You know, can you imagine the threat of impacts, whether it's fires or floods or hurricanes or tornadoes or wh whatever mother nature has to throw at us. It's unsustainable to think that we can just carry on as business as usual. We really, we're at a point where it's a paradigm shift and we have to think about things differently. So whether we're uh, hardening our infrastructure whether we're putting in, you know, different types of infrastructure for stormwater management, whether we're looking at things differently from a training perspective, because excessive heat creates situations where you just can't train your troops. So when we reach triple digit temperatures in, in, in the country, we call that a black flag day. So last year we had 81 black flag days, which basically means for three months out of the year, we couldn't train our soldiers, our airmen, our Marines, et cetera, because it just, the conditions weren't safe. In my lifetime, when we look at the modeling of the impacts of climate change, over the next 20 years, we expect that to almost double. So the number of black flag days would almost double. So now roughly half of the year is just unsafe to be able to train our troops. So this creates issues, as you can imagine, from a readiness perspective, being able to address, you know, threats around the world. And I'm not just talking about, you know, uh, bad guys. I'm talking about humanitarian efforts. You know, the, the military is usually the first one in. We're operating in all corners of the world with you know, humanitarian aid as well. Are you prior service? So I worked civil service 
So I was a I was in a civil service capacity. Most of my career has been with the military, first with the Army Corps of Engineers, and then more recently uh, up at Air Force Special Operations Command, uh, where I was heading up a lot of uh, R&D in the energy space. And one of the things I don't think people understand is how vital you know, whether with when it comes to the military and just the Defense Department, what have you, is how much technology comes from that sector and then is is, is eventually, you know, uh, made for civilian use, but how important it is. And so, you know, we don't typically hear of the work that the Defense Department, the DOD, the, the, the military is doing with renewable energy and sustainability. Tell us a little bit about what has been done behind the scenes and how long this has been going on as far as and, and your experience and relationship with it. Yeah, you know, that's a great point, Fred. So much innovation is spun out of the DOD, things that we use every day, take for granted, the internet, internet, cell phone technology, global positioning systems, all the apps in your phone, that all of that technology has, a lot of it has been born out of the military, out of the need for innovation. And I think we have one of the most capable uh, fighting forces on the face of the earth so energy is what we call a force multiplier and what basically what that means is it, it's what fuels the mission and it doesn't matter if you're flying aircraft or you're you're putting troops on the ground or you're you're you know you're you're powering uh, other types of uh war fighting equipment without energy you really don't have a fighting force and i think when you look at energy through that paradigm um, innovation research development test and evaluation all of those things become super, super critical. So we're seeing tremendous amounts, record uh, investments on the part of agencies like DOE and, and DARPA and some of these other organizations. But let me, let me give you something else to think about. When we become so reliant on technology, we are fighting a different war and it's uh, a war uh, in cyberspace for that cyber dominance because now, you know, it, it used to be that um, warfare was hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, like back in the days of the Romans. And then we became more technology-oriented, and then we were shooting missiles at each other. Now you get, you get people on keyboards that are shutting down power plants and impacting your national grid. I mean, look at what happened, you know, in Texas. We don't have to go very far to find these examples where technology has enabled a different war to evolve in cyberspace. So we have a whole talk at, at the Power Up Energy Expo on the impact of cybersecurity and how it touches not just generation, but delivery systems, transmission, the whole grid is uh, fully integrated. So you'll hear presentations from the utilities that are talking about what they're doing to combat the threat of cyber um, security. So it's it's not just, you know, bad guys looking to do bad things, you know, at our installations in the physical environment. Uh, but now we're dealing with this energy security issue, which is of paramount importance. Talk a little bit about what kind of threat is posed to the grid or other parts of our electric system and what you guys are doing over at National Energy USA or just a little bit about what you guys do to kind of help ward off those threats. Yeah, well, you're right. I can't talk about a lot of it, but you know, clearly there's there's vulnerabilities to the grid. We have a lot of uh, aging infrastructure in this country. The grid has really been designed 
with a central power plant that over a series of transmission and distribution lines, step-up transformers, et cetera, delivers, uh, in this case, kilowatt hours from one point of uh, generation to the point of use, wherever that may be. So in our case, you know, there's a power plant 30 miles uh, north of where we are. If you think about all of the infrastructure that's in place right now to get that energy from the power plant to where I sit here today in Pensacola, Florida, there's a lot of vulnerabilities to that. And it's not just, you know, mother nature knocking down a tree limb, breaking down, you know, a distribution point. Now we have cyber threats. So we need to be also thinking about how we ward off those cyber attacks when you have that supply chain of electricity. So a lot of what we're gonna be talking about at PowerUp and a lot of the things that we do as a company is we, we bring the distribution to where it's being utilized. So we're talking about on-site power generation, distributed energy resources. So the effect of what we're doing is we're creating what we call a microgrid. So the power is being generated adjacent to where the power is being utilized so that you limit that supply chain and that distribution network so that you create some resiliency. So a lot of people talk about sustainability and resiliency, and those are both you know, kind of important things, but really what the military is interested in, and I'm not here to say that they're not interested in sustainability because they are, I think they're looking very closely at how they operate and their carbon footprint and things like that, but it's the resiliency part. You know, when, when your installation has vulnerabilities, whether it's uh, Norfolk, Virginia, looking at sea level rise or the Gulf Coast of Florida, looking at hurricanes, et cetera, you can't really escape these impacts of climate change. But when we start looking at this as a company, we work with communities that are interested in building resiliency. So that's been a bit of a buzzword of late, but the reality is you're trying to limit the disruption in service, whether you're the city of Pensacola, or whether you're Naval Air Station, Pensacola, you have a mission, whatever that mission may be, and bringing energy microgrids to your facility builds that resiliency that a lot of these organizations are looking for. And I'll give you another example. I gave a talk recently uh, on our panel was the CFO of Walmart. And somebody asked the question, you know, if, if one of your uh, distribution centers has no power for an hour, you know, what does that cost Walmart? And this guy was super sharp and like to the penny said, well, that's going to impact us. And here's what the financial impact is to the bottom line. Here's how it affects distribution. I mean, Johnny on the spot with an answer because they, they know that they understand that they study that they want to mitigate against that. So when you start looking at it from, um, you know, what is the cost of inaction? That's really how a lot of these projects get financed because sometimes you're saying, okay, well, I got to spend all this money on a what if scenario, but you really look at it as, okay, but what if this does happen? Hypothetically, what if a category five hurricane hits Tyndall Air Force Base? And, and let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, and, and I listen, I hear you loud and clear because here uh, on this side of the Gulf Coast over here in Houston, you know, we keep hearing, you know, the what ifs have now become not what if, but when if. 
right? Because we keep hearing this whole, well, you know, 100-year flood or 100-year hurricanes. Well, we've had, I mean, you know, we've had three extreme weather events in this area because I lived in Beaumont before I lived in Houston, you know, 75 miles apart from each other. But we've had three major weather events in 10 years. So, you know, this idea, and and I think that's one of the things that, that you, you know, you're alluding to, and I think folks within your space and this space understand that, is explaining to folks that the what ifs are, 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 it's not necessarily a what if anymore. It's now become a when if it happens. Right. That's a great point. And then you mentioned the the hundred year flood events that they're not hundred years, no. anymore, right? I mean, that, that, Unfortunately, they're becoming every five so years. Long. I know. I know we do that. And, and I'll tell you this, you know, I was talking with a climate sciences friend of mine over at NASA. They're actually talking about, so we're, we're, well, you know, you're no stranger to hurricanes either, but they're actually talking about redeveloping how we measure hurricanes and adding like a category six hurricane to the scale, which is currently category one through five. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> but it's, it's crazy stuff. You're right. You know, the weather is changing. We, we can't ignore it anymore. We certainly can't stick our head in the sand. I think it's just a matter of leadership. And we're seeing that at a, a lot of the state and, and the community levels, we're starting to see municipalities, you know, set goals and priorities for increasing resiliency. You know, that's kind of the theme of this conference is, you know, building, you know, resilient installations and communities because it is so super critical. And it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, you know, your climate affects us all. Yeah, it does. It, it really does. The, it really the, does. The, the sun is bipartisan, right? I mean, yeah. uh, natural disasters are bipartisan. They do not they care really who they're affecting. They'll, they'll they'll knock us all out with with a in a whim. All right, so we've talked a little about you know grid security, which is enough being done, or is that why folks like you and your uh, national energy are coming in, or or maybe now because of the uh, uh, threat that's out there, that suddenly now we have to pay more attention than we've ever paid. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Um, whenever we put these these conference agendas together, I go back in years past and kind of see some of the things we talked about. A lot of us scientists and engineers that have been in the space for a long time, we've been sounding the alarm for over a decade. Just now people are starting to listen because we've taken some of the hyperbole out of the conversation. And now we're looking historically and we're saying, okay, 2018 was the worst year for billion dollar storm events only to be eclipsed by 2019 all of this is happening in our lifetime in real world it's happening all, all over the country i saw some footage from venice italy and they have become so accustomed to sea level rise that there was this fine dining restaurant where every patron and every staff member was wearing galoshes because there was a foot of water covering the entire restaurant. And it just, it became normal. It was like a way of life. They're just dealing with it. Um, so we're starting to now see leadership taking this seriously, you know, whether it's at the federal level or at the community level, because it's it's become an issue that has constrained financial resources. Um, and it's, it's, just, it's just getting worse, quite frankly, Fred. You know, I try and say I'm a scientist, not a politician. I wish the politicians would stop being scientists. But, uh, you know, here, here's the reality. I think, um, you know, this isn't some, you know, left coast conspiracy, right? We're experiencing all over, whether it's a red state, blue state, it really doesn't matter. We're all Americans at the end of the day. I think what has helped this conversation when we start talking about the adoption of new technologies has been cost. 
I'll give you an example. I put solar on my house nine, nine and a half, 10 years ago. Let's just say 10 years ago. In that decade, the cost of solar has come down 60%. The efficiency in the panels has increased by, I'm going to say it's almost doubled. So now you have this convergence of high efficiency, low cost compared to the rising cost of electricity. And now Joe homeowner looks at this as a, an ROI. Okay, I'm going to put some money into my, you know, my biggest asset, my home. I'm going to get a return on investment in the single digits. My system's already paid for itself because we've net zeroed our house. And now people are starting to realize that, oh, this does make financial sense. You know, it's not about the, you know, I call it the bugs and the bunnies. A lot of people are now looking at it as a good investment. You know, an electric vehicle costs three cents per mile to run an, an EV where its internal combustion engine counterpart is three times as much. So now EVs are starting to make a lot of sense for people, especially like you go to New York City, every taxi cab is a Toyota Prius, pretty much, you know, because they they drive a lot and, and it makes a lot of financial sense. So I think what, what's happened is technology has finally caught up where it makes, a, you could look at this from a balance sheet perspective and you have huge companies like Ikea and Walmart and some of these big box stores that are looking at their you know, 100,000 square foot facility and saying, hmm, I could cut half of my energy bill in half inside of a decade by putting solar on the roof. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't I do that? So I think that's part of it. I think we, we're now taking some of the, the political stripes off of this issue. And now it's becoming more mainstream because it's starting to make financial sense. And I think people, everybody likes to save money. You know, it doesn't matter what uh, political aisle you come from. I think, you know, saving money is always a good thing. So I think that's what's kind of helping as well. Also, too, you talk about, uh, you know, microgrids. Now, I, I see you guys talk about smart grids. Is, is that is that the same thing? Tell us a little bit about smart grids versus microgrids. Yeah. So, so microgrids is basically taking generation to the point where it's being used. You're literally, think about it as creating a circle around your infrastructure. So I'll give you an example. You may have a hospital, right? Critical infrastructure. You may have a wastewater treatment plant. That thing's got to run. You bring on-site power generation to that facility so that it's on your campus and you create some energy security for that piece of infrastructure, whatever it might be. The smart grid is a little different. Um, smart grids, uh, we're asking the grid to do things that it really wasn't designed to do. So I gave you that example about the power generating facility over here, and it's gonna power your house over here. Now, what happens when you're generating electricity and you're pushing kilowatts in the opposite direction? You're net metering, right? So you're producing all the energy that you need, and hey, you put in all these energy conservation measures, now you have extra energy, now you're pushing it in the other direction. Well, the grid's not really designed for that. So we have issues with load and capacity factor and things where you're just having to curtail some of that energy, especially out in California, where there's so much renewable energy that's on the grid that it's actually taxing that infrastructure. So a smart grid is bi-directional. So it's able to push and pull kilowatt hours on demand as needed. The other thing that a smart grid does is it's able to sense an outage when there's too much voltage on that line, the grid right now is designed to shut down. 
A smart grid can anticipate this load because it understands when people come home from work and they turn their air conditioners on and you have a big spike. So it anticipates that load and it, it kind of heals itself is what we call it to be able to regulate that voltage for different times of use. So you have that smart grid component, which is kind of the grid of the 21st century, where it's able to push and pull in that bi-directional fashion. But then it also has that healing component where it's almost like predetermined, if you will. There's a lot of machine learning that goes into a lot of the different things that we do today. And there's a artificial intelligence that's now being introduced into the grid of the future to be able to be predictive in that sense. Where does that play along with battery storage then? Yeah, so battery storage is another technology that I'm not going to say it's emerging, you know, be, because we've had battery storage for, for really for decades. But like solar, where 10 years ago, it didn't make sense economically, it was way too expensive. Now it's starting to make sense. We have different types of technologies, low batteries, you know, lithium ion, which you see a lot in electric vehicles because they're low weight and very uh, energy dense. So we're starting to see a lot of this storage technology because let's be honest, here in Florida, on average, we have about five hours of available sunlight per day. So if you're only operating five hours a day, you're good to go. Mm -hmm. But most people aren't, you know, you want the city when you need it, 24 hours, you know, et cetera. So now you have to figure out, okay, if I'm gonna go solar and I need resiliency, I met the sustainability side, but I'm going to need battery technology to give me that resiliency for when the sun doesn't shine. Today is a beautiful day in Pensacola. I'm sure my solar panels are producing, but you know, at night, guess what? They don't. <laughs> and then when you have cloudy days, which we have, they don't. So that's where the storage technology comes in. But I'm going to tell you what I'm most excited about. Um, I'll give you a quick story. I used to drive a Toyota Prius, no surprise. And it's got obviously onboard batteries. That's what an EV is. It's just a series of batteries on wheels, basically. So we had a hurricane that came to our house, knocked out power from my neighborhood for about three days. I took a $70 inverter that I bought online and I plugged it into my car and I ran my refrigerator. I ran my laptop. I charged cell phones for my entire community. I was very popular that, that one. <laughs> because it, it brought that resiliency component. It, we call it vehicle to grid, where now your electric vehicle, and we're starting to see this with the new- What, uh, V2G, Ford, right? V2G, yeah, V2G is here. Uh, and it's a good thing, because what'll happen is when there's more proliferation of electric vehicles, the utilities will be able to buy that energy from you, because your car is gonna be connected to your house so you can work out an arrangement with your utility provider where now when the utility has to bring on more demand because it's August in Florida or Houston and everybody came home from work, it's 5.30, everybody's cranking up their ACs, et cetera. You're gonna be able to balance the grid with the energy that's in your electric vehicle. And that's, that's the part that's really exciting is to be able to use that resource um, you know, in ways that we, we just never could. I saw an article yesterday about people complaining that, well, EVs are going to put too much stress on an already taxed grid. Is this where the V2G is, is one answer to that problem or that possible solution? 
Uh, it could be. So that is a fair comment because it is. Now, we're, you know, obviously electric vehicles haven't really penetrated the market all that much. You know, we're still kind of in the single digits, but they're coming. All the auto. Oh, absolutely. I mean, hell, look at look at Hertz. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A hundred thousand, you know, Teslas. That, that's going to if you got Tesla stock, you know, you had a good day. Um, but but that's a fair comment. And that's where we need to make the investments into the grid to be able to anticipate that load. Now, the good news is, you know, we import a lot of oil from out of the country. You know, we, we produce some here, obviously, but we produce some. And let's face it, from some parts of the world that really don't like us all that much. I think for EV technology, being able to, to generate the energy that you use, you know, domestically, I think is important from a national security perspective. I think what EVs will do is they will forever transform the energy sector, because now utilities, the ones that you know uh, provide you electricity, are now looking at that as a new customer base, right? So getting them off of um, oil and getting them onto electricity. Now we can talk about how that electricity is being generated, but also from an air quality perspective, you know, it's zero emissions at the tailpipe. And here in this country and in, in other communities where there's more dense, densely populated. Uh, neighborhoods, California is a good example, you're going to see an improvement in air quality because of this transition. And I think ultimately there will be some stresses on the grid for sure. The grid is already stressed right now. Um, I mean, you know, Texas is a good example of, of, you know, the need to modernize the grid. So I think that's a very fair, that's the, those are kind of the, the issues that we wrestle with looking into the future, you know, at what point is there a critical mass that it's going to cause an issue? And it's in the near future. If you look at the rate of adoption for electric vehicles that a lot of the big car manufacturers are predicting, um, we're behind the curve when it comes to making the investments in infrastructure. So you know this. And listen, you've worked with the government. You know how you know they work, good, bad, and indifferent. What are they waiting on? What's the delay in getting this thing going if, if you guys like you and now the rest of the masses are finally starting to trickle out that, hey, this, this grid needs to be fixed, especially if we're going to bring on this onset of EVs and, and, and even more? Yeah, yeah. So I struggle with this a lot because it, it starts to get political. But, you know, the reality is um, we, we have a Congress that has on both sides kind of entrenched themselves um, into their political corners. And that has stalled progress at the federal level. What I'm most encouraged about is this has created a vacuum and cities and, and states have now pushed forward because they see this firsthand, right? Like your community, my community, you know, we're like, we can't figure out what's happening in DC, but we got problems that we need to fix right now. So we're starting to see more of that leadership level at the local level, which honestly, that's where it needs to be. We are starting to see some funding uh, coming from Congress with you know, some of these initiatives from this new administration. So I think what's happening, and this is the part that gets me really excited, is we're having this groundswell of leadership at the local level with funding, hopefully, <laughs> coming from the federal level that can help um, in this, uh, this transition into this new energy economy. Right now, I see energy kind of where the dot-com industry was in the 80s where it was just this mad rush you know and, and job creator and all these different things there are more people in the solar industry today than there are in gas coal 
nuclear combined. I mean, that sector is growing exponentially. Uh, before the pandemic, here in Florida, the fastest growing job in the state was a solar panel installer. And nationally, the fastest growing job was a wind turbine technician. So, I mean, that tells you that we're in the throes of this transformation. And even though there's been a stall or a lag, let's say at the federal level, we're starting to see real leadership at the local level. And I get excited about that. You've got a tremendous board as part of the National Energy USA group. And, you know, it's not every day you see a uh, war hero and, and somebody as extremely decorated as a General Wesley Clark. Tell us a little bit about General, General Wesley Clark's, uh, your relationship with him and, and how he became a part of, of the team over there at uh, National Energy. You know, uh, he ran for president, which a lot of people don't know. And he did run. That's exactly. Yeah. He sure did. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's when I met him. Uh, he was campaigning in Florida and I went out to one of his events. I was a big fan of his. And little did I know that he was familiar with a lot of the work that I was doing with the Air Force, you know, in and around energy. So we, we hit it off. Um, and I think uh, we've just had a great relationship since then. He is incredibly knowledgeable on cybersecurity. He's one of the world experts, frankly, in my opinion. We've been very fortunate you know, to have him on the team. I think um, you know, he brings a, a lot of knowledge, you know, having served as the uh, Supreme Allied Commander for NATO forces under the Clinton administration. He just really understands geopolitics really, really well, understands the threat of cybersecurity, understands climate change, and man, he's got so many stories. Well, that was, I was just getting ready to say, I can only imagine the stories. Yeah, yeah. You could, I mean, he could literally go to any conference and talk for like 20, 25 minutes and he'll relate it to whatever that conference might be. I mean, it could be a conference about like highlighters and he'll end up with a story uh, that it just kind of resonates with you, you know? You know, the rest of our board, we have uh, Bernie Rice that came over from IBM had a lot of experience with that Watson program, artificial intelligence. Yeah. Got folks in from Siemens that have you know long careers with Siemens in the energy sector. So we just we've been really fortunate and and has been very very helpful in the company's growth. What led you to start National Energy USA, and what's been some of the uh, you know what what what's been the best part about being a business owner, and what have been some of the challenges being in this industry? Oh, uh, or maybe that's another podcast. Who knows? Yeah, I, I might punt on that last one because uh, I will tell you, being an entrepreneur, hands down, hardest thing I've ever done. Really? Uh, yeah, it, it really has been. Uh, so I've been a scientist for two decades now at this point. Um, really honed our, our my craft, if you will, um, with the Department of Defense. Really had a great opportunity. Uh, so fortunate to have been under the leadership of Colonel Fuller and, and the team over at Air Force Special Operations Command because they get it. You know, I didn't have to convince them. We, we didn't talk at all about my favorite topic, which is garbage. So that's a podcast for, for yet another day. Absolutely. But we had the opportunity, we had the opportunity at, at Herbert Field to deploy the first of its kind plasma gasification technology. And I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I could talk trash for hours. But effectively, our job was to look at, at garbage, not as an environmental liability, which it is, spoiler alert, but look at it as a tool in the energy security conversation. So how we can look at the embodied energy that's in our waste stream, our solid waste, our municipal solid waste stream, 
how we can sort out the recyclables and keep that, what we call the organic fraction of that waste stream, because it has chemical energy in it. You know, we can convert that into electrons or hot water or, or hydrogen, you know, if that was the direction or sustainable aviation fuel. So we, we've always seen garbage as a way to enable that energy security that a lot of our customers were looking for, whether it's uh, growing algae to extract the triglycerides to make a biofuel or using municipal solid waste to power your critical infrastructure. Uh, that's where we have really um, stood out from you know, some other companies that are getting into the, what we call the climate tech space. Solid waste landfills are the third largest emitter of methane, uh, so they don't get a lot of attention, but uh, it's a real problem. So we've been kind of creating a niche. Uh, and then of course, with the Department of Defense, looking at what we call waste powered energy microgrids, which is gonna be featured in an upcoming uh, article in the, uh, in the military engineer uh, publication, which we're excited about. Um, and just looking at, looking at that as a way to um, provide critical infrastructure for you know, let's face it, something that we don't really think a lot about, right? Garbage truck comes down your neighborhood once a week, you roll out the can if you remember to do it, and you don't really think about it, right? At the end of the day, oh, look, it's like magic, it disappeared. It's actually, you know, sitting in a big hole, creating lots of these climate change impacts that we're talking about, so. You're right. Nobody thinks about the, the, the impact that trash is having on climate change. Like that's again, that's one of those things that you just don't, you put your trash out, you think, okay, well, I got my green trash can that I throw my recyclables in. I'm doing my part. So, hey, I'm good to go, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. People don't think about it. You know, we, we, we send billions of tons of garbage into the landfill every year. Um, you know, obviously being able to take that and, and using it as a resource, I think is going to bring value to society because you know we just can't keep taking holes in the ground and shoving our garbage in. I mean, that's what that's what the Mesopotamians did. It's like really, we can't do better than that. That's a good point. We got Elon Musk is shooting electric vehicles into space, and we're still burying our garbage. Come on, man. So, are you confident then with with what your with what your group is doing and with what other folks are doing that this thing can be uh, uh, wrangled under control and, and we can find to start seeing a more sustainable way to take trash and, and turn it into energy? Absolutely. Here's what I'll say: because a lot of people, when they hear garbage and they hear energy, they they think about you know maybe the the incinerator from the 70s, which frankly aren't much better than just sticking garbage in the ground, in my opinion. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a very clean process, um, lots of technology. There's even robotic technology that's being introduced uh, at the front end to be able to pull out recyclables from the waste stream. I mean, it's just a whole different technology. When you look at municipal solid waste as a feedstock or as a fuel, as the EPA calls it, I mean, it's just a total game changer, you know, being able to, to control your own supply chain. Cause that's another thing that we don't really talk about. You know, there, there's precious metals in a lot of these solar panels, a lot of these battery technologies, there's materials that in, we don't really control, you know, China owns most of the world's nickel mines, you know? So we start thinking about, oh, we're gonna put batteries everywhere. Well, not if you don't control the supply chain. So I always think energy should be domestic first and foremost and then clean, renewable, reliable, et cetera. Uh, but I think you, as a country, we want to control that supply chain. You've got a big event coming up Wednesday and Thursday, okay? And uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what that event is. 
Yeah, so uh, so I have a nonprofit in addition to our company, National Energy. We have a nonprofit called the Gulf Coast Energy Network, and been operating that for about 15 years. For about, I guess this is our 12th annual uh, Power Up Energy Expo, which is kind of a, a two-day conference bringing together subject matter experts on everything from fortified, you know, design and construction to sustainable, you know, building planning tools and technologies, renewable energy, alternative transportation. So we've pulled together about two or 300 people every fall. Uh, this year it's at uh, Tyndall Air Force Base over in Panama City. We're co-hosting with the installation to host it. So we get a lot of participation from DOD, um, uh, Mr. Richard Kidd coming down from the Pentagon. Of course, the Air Force always, always brings their senior leadership. And then we have a lot of uh, installation level, you know, installation energy managers, mission support group commanders. Those types are typically the ones that attend. So our Power Up Energy Expo is now in its 12th year, which is uh, hard to believe, but uh, here we are still kicking. Obviously had a lot of things that we had to deal with, uh, one being COVID. You know, when you're bringing together large groups of people, you always want to do that, you know, in a safe environment. So we we had a good track record last year. Of course, this year we're, we're offering the hybrid version as well for people that may have travel restrictions, et cetera. For folks that maybe aren't on the Gulf Coast that still want to be able to attend virtually, what are some of the things that, you know, they're going to learn or some, something that, uh, you know, might pique their interest? Yeah, you know, it's become an international conference. A couple of years ago, I, I met a woman who came in from uh, Dubai to learn about energy resiliency. So we've probably reached about maybe nine countries at this point. But, you know, in a COVID environment, you do want to accommodate, you know, for, for those issues. So the best thing I could tell people is the full agenda is available at PowerUpEnergyExpo.com. So if you go to that website, PowerUpEnergyExpo.com, you can register to attend virtually. And then that registration will also give you access to on-demand sessions. So for some people, busy schedules, maybe you don't have a full, you know, seven hours to commit on Wednesday and then another three hours on Thursday. So you have access to these sessions uh, on an on-demand basis. So you'll learn all about you know, resilient infrastructure, high performance buildings, you know, what's, uh, what's the future of energy going to look like, you know, smart grids, microgrids, um, all these renewable technologies that are coming down the pike. So you'll hear from subject matter experts from all corners of the industry, public sector, private sector, utilities, universities. So we have a pretty diverse audience. Get you out of here with this 2022. Like I said, you got the uh, you got Power Up Energy Expo coming up. Kind of, how do you plan on closing out 2021 after the expo? And then what's uh, what's on the docket for 2022? For 2022, we're going to be in polar opposites. We're going to be in Hawaii talking about resiliency with the Navy, um, talking about some of the issues that are specific to that ser uh, service, and then we're going to be down in the Caribbean also talking about you know how do you generate you know, power locally? How do you produce, you know, that energy resiliency that you're looking for at a local level? So we'll have a couple of conferences uh, talking around these same themes. And then here in Florida, we always like to do a fun one with the hospitality group and, and talking about increasing the deployment of renewable energy, electric vehicle charging stations, those, that infrastructure is going to be super, super critical for widespread adoption of electric vehicles. 
So yeah, we got some things in the works. Yeah, hopefully you'll have me back on and we'll talk about it. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Dave Robow. And yes, we do look forward to having you on the program once again. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you check us out on Apple iTunes, which we know a lot of you do, please give us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy from the podcast than you knew about it before you stopped by. Want to thank everybody for checking in and listening to the Green Insider Podcast. And, of course, we want to thank the entire eRenewable team, Mike, Ann, Al, and all of you for helping make this podcast possible. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Good to know it's all a game.